You, sir, are a fake Christian. Just thought you should know. Got a fair amount of these, very concise, to the point. Loser, Trump 2020. You should be ashamed of yourself for the terrible song you wrote, Attacking Good Christians. You are a charlatan and not a man of God. Be very ashamed that Satan is working through you. All right. Shame on you. May God take his wrath on those who support murderers. Again, another uh, Trump 2020. Boah, ha, 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 ha. Please stop calling yourself a Christian. You're a wolf in sheep clothing, sowing discord among the brethren, and are therefore of your father Satan. The reading for the day comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. The love of Christ overwhelms us whenever we reflect on this, that if one person has died for all, then all have died. The reason Christ died for all was so that the living should love no longer for themselves, but for Christ, who died and was raised to life for them. And so from now on, we don't look on anyone in terms of mere human judgment. Even if we did not did once regard Christ in these terms, that is not how we know Christ now. And for anyone who is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old order has passed away. Now everything is new. All of this is from God, who ransomed us through Christ and has made all ministers of that reconciliation. This means that through Christ, the world was fully reconciled again to God, who didn't hold our transgressions against us, but instead entrusted us with this message of reconciliation. This makes us Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making the appeal directly through us. Therefore, we implore you in Christ's name, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made the one who was without sin to be sin, so that by this means we might become the very wholeness, holiness of God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zhao MKE Church. As you heard from Dan, we are in the middle of our hate mail series. You see, we have been up to a lot of very public ministry lately, not really any different from the things that we do all the time, but we've gotten a little more attention lately. And along with a lot of support and connection and affection that we've received as we've done this work in a really public way, we've gotten some trolls and some haters who have spent a lot of time and energy to let us know how they feel. And rather than just writing that off, um, we wanted to spend just a few weeks going through that hate mail, understanding where exactly is this coming from? Because we know that trolls are not born, they are made. And that the hate in this world is something that we're all collectively subject to. That the hate mail that we receive is actually an expression of a wound that we are all suffering from, even though it comes out in these concentrated moments, in these messages from haters. So we wanted to spend some time in our hate mail, dissecting all the different themes that are coming up, where those themes are coming from, and what the antidote is to it, which is the good news of Jesus and the love we all share together. 
We heard from Dan his own experience with hate mail. And there are a lot of common themes of the hate that he received for the song that he wrote, which, by the way, we will be hearing later in the service, so stick around for that. But we heard some of these same themes. Just like us last week, he was told he was a fake Christian, just like we heard we were a fake church. But there's also a lot of other themes, including judgment. The judgment of God specifically, or judgment day, mentions of wrath and punishment. In his hate mail as well as Zhao's, there are a lot of threats that will burn in hell or that will be punished someday, that we are going to be um, made to pay for our sins at some point. And many of us have heard this our whole lives. Many of us actually stayed away from church and religious spaces for a really long time because we couldn't get those voices out of our head that told us that someday we were going to burn. That wrath, that judgment, that sense that God is vengeful and watching for us, waiting for us to slip up so that we can be tortured for eternity, that is really baked into our cultural understanding of who God is. Luckily, it is not who God actually is, and so we're going to spend some time dissecting that and taking it apart. But first, I wanted to just acknowledge that a lot of us have been told before that we are going to be the recipients of God's wrath. Now, that may be because we have been publicly engaging in work of justice and truth-telling, that prophetic uh, activity of the church that we witness in the streets when we were out um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and when we are advocating for the lives of LGBTQ people and refugees and immigrants, or when Dan was writing his song and making art that was prophetic truth-telling. We also hear these judgments and pronouncements based on who we are, which is incredibly painful. So some of us have been told that we are going to suffer eternally in the judgment of God because of who we love or who we marry or perhaps who we choose not to be married to anymore. And then there are those mundane realities of human life that seem to come with eternal damnation. Maybe it's the way you dressed, or the way you talked back to your grandma, or that really bad lie you told that one time. But in the back of our minds, we're all going, oh no, I'm going to burn for this one. I'm going to hell for sure. It's such a deep trope in our culture that we make light of it. We try and say, well, hell sounds a lot more fun anyway, right? We try and laugh it off to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to hell for that. And yet those jokes come from something. We're trying really hard to make light of something that feels so heavy. This idea that just for being who we are, for moving through the world the best way we know how, or for making mistakes we're going to end up in hell. And this culminates this trope in this kind of judgment day. And so in a lot of our hate mail, there was a lot of like, someday you will stand before the great white throne. Or what are you going to say at the pearly gates? But there is this time of reckoning <clears throat> that we have, this idea that actually does come from certain places of scripture, that there will be a day of judgment and we have really latched onto that as a culture. And when we feel judgment in ourselves, we collectively, we often project that onto others. And we say, oh, you're going to get what's coming to you someday. 
It's a really satisfying thing if you're feeling self-righteous. But if you've ever been on the other end of that, you know how destructive and cruel it can be. How it can worm its way into your psyche and your nightmares. How you can feel all the time like you're not going to be okay. Someday, everything you've ever done is going to come back to haunt you. Now, this is a very human version of judgment. In this human understanding of judgment, judgment day, the day of reckoning, the time when we will all be held to account, is a time of shame. A time of conviction with a God who is angry and scorekeeping, who is just waiting to catch you in the act so that you can be punished literally forever. This is a human idea. Luckily, it doesn't actually square with the person and character of God we know through Jesus. This whole conversation is a part of something called eschatology, which is just a fancy academic word for conversations we have about when this all goes down. The end times, the eschaton. It's Greek and it actually literally means at last. So at the last of everything, at the final event, what is God's plan for how this is all going to wrap up? We get some of our wilder ideas about how things are going to end from the book of Revelation. You may hear people quoting Revelation about the end of times and the tribulation, even perhaps the rapture. Fortunately for us, most of the modern theories about what the meaning of Revelation is are totally bonkers, have nothing to do with the original intent of that scripture. Revelation is a type of literature we actually don't really have anymore. We see it a couple of times throughout the scriptures, but it's a genre that just doesn't really make sense in our culture. It's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic, as we all kind of talk about it, is related to the end of times the end of things, how all of this will culminate. But more specifically, it's actually about an uncovering, an unveiling, a revealing, if you will, hence the name Revelation. Now, when Revelation was written, as well as Daniel and the other apocalyptic literature in scripture, it was all coded, there was a lot of weird imagery. That was politically motivated because we needed to be really thoughtful. Early believers needed to be very careful about how they spoke out against the empires that they were predicting would fall, would crumble in the end of things. Apocalyptic literature is about saying things actually won't always be the way that they are now. The empires that, that claim to rule will crumble. Those oppressors who have their boot on our neck will kneel before the true authority of all things, the God of love and mercy. But when we talk about the end of things, it is easy for us to get carried away to say, well, what will the end of things look like? What judgment will come to those who have hurt me? But also to get carried away with panic because we know that we have harmed others as well. What judgment is coming my way? And how do I avoid it? You see, most of that uh, pressure around people telling you you're going to burn or that Judgment Day is coming, it's meant to be coercive. It's meant to frighten you into behaving in the way that that person thinks is correct. 
It's meant to scare you. And it works a lot of the time. But we know that our God is not a God of fear and punishment and coercion. That's just not who God is. So how do we square Judgment Day and the threats and the coercive behavior of our culture with the God of love? Well, let's talk a little bit about Judgment Day. We see what the assumptions are of Judgment Day in our hate mail. According to our hate mail, Judgment Day is when God is wrathful, vengeful, shaming, punitive, retaliatory, and scorekeeping. That God is going to finally gather everyone in and just let everybody have it for everything that they've ever done wrong. And that that is ultimately going to be um, the score of our worth and that if we don't measure up, we will perish in a lake of fire. Again, lake of fire, these are images from Revelation taken out of context. But we know that Judgment Day, however we understand it, has to square with our understanding of the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And scripture can be really overwhelming. I'm not going to lie to you about that. There are a lot of different ideas about God and God's behavior and God's character that come up in that collection of books and stories and poems and histories. And so when we're trying to understand who the character of God is, we as Christians have chosen to look first and foremost to the person of Jesus. That's fundamentally what it means when we say at Zao we are Jesus-rooted. It means that when we're trying to understand who God is and what judgment is and all of these things, we have to look first to Jesus, the Son of God, but also God incarnate, God enfleshed, God who put on a body and came to be with us, to speak to us in intimate and clear ways. So we look first to Jesus. And the Jesus that I know, the Jesus that I have met in my life, and the Jesus that I read about in scriptures is not wrathful, is not vengeful, is not shaming, is not punitive or retaliatory or scorekeeping. Jesus is merciful. He's angry, but he's merciful. Jesus offers forgiveness. He calls out what has been done wrong, the harm that people have come to, but he doesn't hold that actually as a measure of people's worth. Jesus offers overflowing love and acceptance and presence. Jesus doesn't ever drive people away. Jesus invites in, certainly invites folks to stop harming one another, and will not be silent about the ways that harm is caused and perpetrated. And yet, this is never a reflection for Jesus on the worth or value or belovedness of any person. Jesus is able to hold a powerful tension between calling to account and calling out harmful behavior and holding in deep love and affection every child, every beloved. Our understanding of Judgment Day must be in line with the person of Jesus as we know him. And so when we imagine Judgment Day, how do we stop looking at it from this human perspective, as the scriptures say, and start looking at it 
from the Jesus perspective? What does Judgment Day look like from an all-loving God who prophetically speaks against evil and harm and has unending, unwavering affection and positive regard for literally every human being that ever lived? Well, first we have to confront those sins those harms that are moving us towards an incorrect understanding of judgment. For most of us, this comes from fear. We are terrified of what judgment looks like. And we have reason to be terrified. We have earned our terror in that because many of us have been terrorized by it, have been taught that God's judgment will harm us that we will be hurt, we will be punished, because ultimately we are bad and we deserve it. And that is just a lie. That is just a lie. That is the human weaponization of God's loving truth and care. Because God's judgment isn't like human judgment. And the fears that we have can actually be driven out by the perfect love of God. Our scriptures promise us that perfect love casts out fear. And so we know that whatever judgment day is, it's not something that we need to be afraid of because it is driven, it is commanded, it is brought into being by love. Whatever judgment day is, it is not something that we need to fear ever. The function of Judgment Day, according to a God of love, has to be love. And the scriptures tell us that it is towards a love of reconciliation, of wholeness, of bringing back into relationship all that has been broken and torn apart by violence and evil and hatred. That Judgment Day is part of God's project of love, of bringing all things back into deep and intimate connection with God, God's own self, and all of us, bringing us into connection with one another and God and ourselves. How? How is my big question? And honestly, for years, I avoided this topic altogether because if judgment is not something that we should be afraid of, then my only thought is that judgment is just kind of a forgive and forget. And honestly, that feels really bad to me too because I have harmed people and I've been harmed by people. And for me, this idea that we could just forget it and move on sounds like another form of hurt. And so I didn't really think much about the end of times. If you asked me about the end of times a few years ago, I would have said, well, I guess I'd probably say the same thing now, which is, I don't know what happens, but I trust that God is a God of love and that God is wise and kind. And so whatever happens in the end is loving and wise and kind. But beyond that, I just don't know. A few years ago, though, I would stop there and I would refuse to consider anything. I will note that I think we, we get into waters too deep for ourselves pretty quickly when we talk about eschatology or the end of times, that we move into speculation very, very fast, and that anyone who is speaking with certainty about the end of times is finding their certainty other than in their faith or their scriptures. 
But what if we could go there? What if we could go there together and think about how a loving God would orchestrate something like a judgment day? A judgment day that we need have no fear of. Well, a number of years ago, when I was in this phase of forget about it, I don't want to talk about it, uh, a professor who became a friend and colleague, Tim Eberhardt, mentioned to me that he thought that perhaps Judgment Day might be like a cosmic truth and reconciliation commission. Now, if you don't know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the first one was in South Africa in the 90s after apartheid. It was a huge scale undertaking of something called restorative justice. Now, our concepts of justice in our, in our criminal justice system, in our legal systems, are usually based on retaliatory justice or punitive justice, which means an eye for an eye or something similar, or like, You've done something bad, so we're going to do something bad back to you. With the exception of some, uh, some forms of punishment, most parents actually have a pretty basic idea that that's not how we respond, right? We're not saying, oh, you hit your brother, so I'm going to hit you now. We've moved on from that. But we've only shifted just a little to say, you've hit your brother, therefore I'm going to punish you by taking away something that you love or, um, or removing you from a relationship. These are forms of punitive justice that assume that the way to make things right again when someone takes something from someone else or harms someone else is to sort of even the score. This is that scorekeeping mentality that human beings have. Restorative justice, though, is a different approach. Restorative justice says there was some sort of relationship here, and it was harmed, or, or violence was inflicted from one party to another, and now there is a wound. And the way to move beyond that wounding is not to re-wound the, the offender or the perpetrator. It's to heal the damn wound. And how do you heal a wound? Well, first you have to acknowledge it. First you have to own up to it. First you have to say, I hurt you. And you have to say, I'm hurt. Restorative justice operates on these principles of truth-telling, of witnessing, of uncovering, of revealing. It is, in a very literal sense, an apocalyptic effort at justice, where we, we watch what has happened. We don't turn away or pretend that it, it didn't happen or um, pretend that it can be made better just by repeating it somewhere else. Restorative justice says, horrible wrongs have been committed. And we must talk about that and acknowledge it we have to grieve. We have to lament. Whether we are grieving our own pain to just have the world bear witness and see that it is real for us to say, I am so hurt, I am so wounded by what you have done and you need to know. Or to lament and offer sorrow at being a perpetrator or an oppressor. To say, oh my God, what have I done? 
and to have the world bear witness to your confession. And if that sounds otherworldly, know that there was a human version in South Africa after apartheid, which was an awful and horrific experience for generations that caused deep trauma, that was built into the infrastructure of life. And when the communities were trying to heal from that, they put together the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Victims were invited to publicly testify to the horrific violence they had endured, to be heard, to be seen, to be felt, to be received by the community, that all could bear witness to what they had been through, that they didn't have to hold and carry that alone anymore. And perpetrators were invited to confess they were invited to tell their own truth of what they had done, to own up to their part, to name their violence that they brought into the world that they bear responsibility for, to be heard as they confessed in front of their victims and in front of their whole community. And then perpetrators and victims were offered opportunities to give or request amnesty to offer reparations and repairs. And the onus was on those perpetrators to heal the wound that they had inflicted, first by confession and acknowledgement, and then by material repairs to say, I know that I caused this wound, and here's what I'm prepared to do to help you heal from the thing that I have done. What would it be like if we did that on an eternal cosmic scale. This idea that Tim put in my head about Judgment Day changed the game for me. Because this offers a totally different function of judgment. That judgment is not punishment. Judgment is not, aha, I caught ya. Judgment then is the first and necessary step towards wholeness. Because if God, after all of this, were to just snap their fingers and say, oh, we're all good now. It's the end of things. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. We're all going to hold hands and play Yahtzee. That would feel really bad to a lot of people, perhaps most of us. The only way for God to simply move immediately from uh, the hurt and pain and brokenness of this world into an eternal utopia that we imagine heaven to be would either be a cheap and shallow peace where we just said everything was fine, even though there were these generations and histories of violence and wounding and trauma, or it would have to be coercive. It would have to require everybody to just get along. And neither of those sound like the Jesus I know. I often talk about how in this work of reconciliation, in this work of coming together, of being made whole, that we have to disarm one another before we bring each other in for an embrace. Because if you are holding a knife to my stomach, I cannot simply bring you in for a hug. You must be disarmed. And the same can be said for all those I have harmed. I must be disarmed. 
I must see the violence of my ways, and I must choose to put down my weapon before I can be trusted to be embraced, to be held, to be made whole again with all of creation. But in addition to laying down those weapons, we also have to acknowledge what's gone on, the harm that we've all caused, the harm that each of us has been victimized by, because we are all people of overlapping experiences of oppression and oppressor, of victim and perpetrator. We need time and space for truth-telling, for confession, for remorse, for lament, for rebuilding trust. This can't be an easy forgetting. These imbalances of power, these histories of harm, they require something hardier, something more real than a false peace. So how do you put right a relationship that has been so deeply wounded? This is the question of a true and loving judgment day. To have judgment day function as a way of getting from here to the heaven, the eternal life, the union with one another and God that we long for, that we talk about, that we trust is real. There must be some bridging experience. And we call that judgment day. But rather than doling out punishment, which is not it, or just wiping it away and forgetting it never happened, we anticipate a judgment day that reflects the love of Jesus and perhaps it is like a cosmic truth and reconciliation commission where we all lay everything bare, the hurts we've caused, the hurts we endure, the truth telling, this witness, it's holy. And that is why we anticipate that moment of reckoning that we participate in it here on earth. That is why prophetic movements like the Movement for Black Lives are holy, are just, are a taste of the things to come. Because when we are in the streets or when activists are in the streets shouting, I can't breathe, say their name, that is the bearing witness. And that witness is necessary. That witness must happen before we can be reconciled. We do know, though, that God's ultimate plan is for reconciliation. And the scriptures tell us that is the function of God's love for us and of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is to reconcile all things. We all need this reconciliation because we are all part of this broken earth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all have been harmed by the sins of the world, by the sins of our siblings, brothers, and sisters. We need to move through collective confession and witness into the kind of healing that would allow for a universal salvation, which I do believe is the promise. 
that one day all things will be made right, that one day we all will have the kind of trust to bring one another in for a full and complete embrace. But we got a lot of work to do between now and then. And some of that is going to involve a kind of reckoning. When I talked to Tim a little bit more about this idea, he said, you know, the cross is a kind of judgment in itself, that we witness Jesus on the cross suffering, this distillation of harm and what it does to a body, to a person, to true love. And that Jesus' statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is an invitation to conversion, is an invitation into this different kind of reckoning, to lament, to say, I do know what I've done. To lay that down and to be brought into an embrace to know that there is life beyond the death of the cross and that that life is open to all, perpetrator and victim alike. The scriptures call us to move beyond the human view of judgment, that God has already reconciled God's self to us and that we are invited to reconcile as well, to be reconciled, to participate in this reckoning that precedes reconciliation. Elsewhere in the scriptures, there is a statement about Judgment Day that I really like. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. And it basically says, stop trying to understand all of this now, to find your place in the pack now, because judgment day will come and you will receive your commendation. And it's an interesting little glimpse because we think so often of judgment day as only being about condemnation. But what about a commendation? The letter implies that some of us are also waiting for our cookies. And Paul doesn't say, shame on you, you don't get any cookies. Paul says, you'll get cookies. You just don't get them right now. But trust, trust and believe your cookies are coming. And that gives me hope that this judgment day, this reckoning, this truth-telling is not only truth-telling of violence and pain and oppression, but it is also a truth-telling, a judgment of love and joy of courage and bravery and affection. It is a time where not only do we bear witness to the sins and evils of the world that may need to be made right, but we bear witness to the joy and hope and love that made life worth living. That we can also praise one another, that we can also speak the truth to one another that we didn't have the courage to say here and now, to say, you saw me, I see you. You loved me, I love you. You gave me hope and courage. You showed love to the world. You offered support when it was most needed. Have a cookie. I don't know what the end of things will really be like, but I do know who the character of God is.
And I know that in God's perfect love, unlike the implications of that hate mail, we have nothing, nothing to fear from Judgment Day. That whatever Judgment Day is, it will be healing for all of us. And that we are invited to hope in that, to live into it as much as we can now, to be ambassadors of love and reconciliation here on this earth and to bring a different kind of judgment. Will you pray with me? God of all things, you long to be made whole as we long to be made whole. God, we praise you for your vision, for knowing more than we do about what is healing. And God, we praise you for our wisdom, for those seeds that you have planted in each of us that do know what is healing and that seek it out. God, we pray that you would root out of us and our culture this fear, this judgment of hate. God, we pray that you would root out of us this assumption that you have our same flaws, that you are judgmental in a way of scorekeeping. But God, open us up to a new way of seeing beyond our human limitations, a new way of understanding that your judgment is a judgment of love. And that the day of reckoning will be one of deep healing, of truth, and of reconciliation. In your name we pray. Amen.